morning, friends. Every week when I study to prepare for uh, teaching and preaching um, from this place, uh, I, I, I think about <clears throat> why you would want to listen um, to this. Uh, what is it that is in the word um, under study that is important to you? Um, and um, what could I say that might encourage your closer attention? Uh, which is in, in homiletics, that is the, the science of preaching, they, they teach you that you ought to, to come with some hook that would uh, um, encourage you to pay attention for the next 40 minutes. And I've, I, I attempt to do that from time to time, as you know. I have introductions that might whet your appetite or things like that. I'm not real good at that. Um, I just prefer to open the text and say, okay, let's go. Um, but I understand uh, the need that people have to, to be drawn in, to be hooked, to be encouraged to listen. And I have discovered over the years of ministry that whenever it is that, that I think that I'm covering a text that is particularly pertinent to the well-being, the spiritual well-being of, of you, I encounter resistance. And so I'm fairly confident that the text before us today and, and what the Holy Spirit would have me say about the text uh, is important because of the resistance I've experienced over the past 72 hours. And I just, uh, I just want you to, to understand uh, this is kind of like the Christian life. Whenever you're experiencing resistance, and we have one enemy, right? The enemy is the devil. And when we experience resistance from him, uh, it's because he, he doesn't want us to read, think about, pray about, experience, converse with those who might um, deepen our walk with Christ, right? So um, there's my, my hook. I, I want you to listen today. Uh, I'd also like someone to turn up the lights. I can't, is it dark in here or is it, am I going blind? Thank you. Thank you. Ooh, not that much. Not up here. The light's down there. The lights up here can stay faded. Uh, that would improve the audience participation. I'm interested in seeing your faces. So uh, whoever turned those lights up here, turn them down a little bit because now I can't see. There we go. There we go. But the house lights need to stay up. All right. Thank you. And my computer went off. Okay. See, resistance. Resistance. Anyway. We are in the most profound section of Scripture in all of Scripture. This is, this is the divine description by way of inspiration concerning the person of Jesus Christ. 
There's a lot of descriptions of Jesus Christ that we come across in Scripture. Like John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all, and so forth. Amazing. Uh, and then Hebrews 1, you know, he's the exact imprint. He, he holds all things together by the power of his Word, and, and what we just heard read in Hebrews 2. Amazing. But nothing compares to Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. Listen as I read. And prepare your hearts, ask the Holy Spirit to open your mind and remove all distractions uh, so that you can benefit from his ministry here for the next few minutes. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, and in everything, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There is, like I said, no parallel to that in Scripture. So why did Paul find it necessary? Why did the Holy Spirit prompt Paul to lay out such a profound description of Jesus Christ our Savior. Well, besides the false teachers that were throwing the Colossian church, the first recipients of this letter, into chaos by saying that Jesus wasn't God, just an exalted being, besides that, I think the Holy Spirit included this Mount Everest of Christology in the Holy Scriptures for our benefit, for your benefit. There's someone in the room this morning or maybe a few in the room this morning, besides me, that the Holy Spirit knows your need. And this is the text to meet that need. So what's the benefit? Well, obviously there's some high and lofty doctrine here concerning Christ. Um, but this lofty language to describe Jesus Christ in these verses was so that we might observe the splendor and majesty of our Savior so that it affects how we think and live the rest of this day, the rest of this week, the rest of our lives. That's the intent. Keep in mind that earlier Paul was praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of God so that their daily walk would be fully pleasing to God so that they would bear fruit in everything their hands touched, and so that they would continue to develop deep and meaningful relationships with other believers and, and be effective in their Christian life. So if we think logically about this text, the Holy Spirit wants us to know significant issues of Jesus Christ to fill up this 
need for knowledge of God so that we will please him in how we think and live. But how does growing in a knowledge of God produce a worthy walk? How does it produce fruit? How does it produce, as Paul prayed for, joy and not just joy generally, but joy in challenging circumstances? How does the knowledge of God do that? He says in verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. How is that going to help me deal with the crisis at home or at work or with my children or my co-workers or my finances? I'm about to tell you. <clears throat> I'm going to focus on those two phrases in verse 15. We'll continue next week with a little bit more of verses 15 through 20. But today, the phrase, Jesus, or he is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. What's in there that will help me grow in my knowledge of God to help me live my life for God? The first reason that I think the Holy Spirit had Paul write this was to demonstrate to us who might be uncertain of these things, that Jesus is in fact sufficient to redeem. He is the the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation to help you understand, Christian, that he is sufficient to redeem even you. So what's involved in redemption? Redemption We're familiar with redemption. We have pawn shops in Yakima. You know, this is what redemption is. Uh, Redemption requires a debt to be paid in order for something to be redeemed, and it's the same with us. In order to be redeemed, our debt must be paid. We're in hock, if you will. In, In our case, this debt is owed to an infinitely holy, glorious, and majestic God who created all things for himself. So how can we, the indebted ones, adequately pay this amount, this kind of debt, to such a high and holy being to whom it is owed? (laughs) We're out of our league, in other words. I think it means it's impossible. Paul knows that, and the Holy Spirit knows, that if we think just a little bit about this, we become discouraged with our state. We don't have the means. Even if we could suffer for eternity, we would still not cover the debt for our offenses against this perfectly holy God. Neither is there any creature who could satisfy, or let's use the biblical word, propitiate the holy and just requirements of God's law, the debt that we owe. As in the Old Testament sacrificial system, we learn when we get to Hebrews that these sacrifices that God ordained in the Old Testament were simply temporary, not sufficient. 
So we are in profound trouble. The reason our circumstances are so dire, besides what I've mentioned, because of our debt, the redemption that we seek, that we're asking for, is ridiculous. We're asking for God's eternal favor. For, for the reversal of his sentence of judgment against our rebellion. We're asking the request that we make for our redemption a forgiveness of all these things. God, we know we owe a massive debt. Will you just forgive it? Have you ever tried that with the bank and your mortgage? This is infinitely more debt. So we're asking our creator, the one we've offended, the holy God of the universe, to pardon. And in addition, it, it gets more ridiculous. We're asking him not only to pardon our debt, but to give us eternal joy. That's an ask, isn't it? The fact that we have, do have, a sufficient Redeemer, which, which these words in chapter 1, verse 15 deliver, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, these words communicate to us that we, in fact, do have a Redeemer because of three realities. And here are the realities. I don't know if these are on the overhead or not, but they might be worth writing down. And there's no fill in the blank. And I know I've trained you to fill in blanks, but um, you might have to write the whole sentence down. First, here's the first reality that demonstrates we do have a redeemer willing to redeem and able the dignity of his person. Secondly, the greatness of his suffering. And third, the merit of his obedience. The dignity of his person, the greatness of his suffering, and the merit of his obedience. Both the second and third realities would be worthless without the first reality. The, the greatness of his sufferings, as great as they were, the merit of his obedience, as wonderful as it was, are worthless without the dignity of his person. <laughs> he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the Lord of creation. <clears throat> so the first and second reality concerning his greatness of suffering and, and, and um, the third, the merit of his obedience, are worthless without the dignity of his person because as, as much suffering as Jesus experienced, it was temporary and limited. He's currently not suffering. 
He's currently not bleeding. It was temporary. It was limited to that moment in time on Calvary and things leading up to Calvary. Was it significant? Oh, yeah. But it wasn't permanent. Thousands of people have been crucified. None of that, none of them or their suffering benefits us at all. And then the merit of his obedience was great. He, he never failed. He never sinned. It was perfect obedience. But unless there is extraordinary circumstances, how could that perfection of obedience matter to us who fail every day? I'm trying to establish the dire situation in which we find ourselves. If Jesus wasn't God, which Paul is arguing that he is, then he would have just been like the rest of us, solely human. And his work or merit, as perfect as it was, would have just been sufficient for himself. No one else. There had to be more to Jesus in order for his death to work for us. The fact that Jesus is God, as Paul is arguing, changes the script. Because he is God, Jesus' sacrifice became of infinite value and worth because God is of infinite value and worth. It's no longer just another crucifixion. It's no longer just another life well lived. No. Listen to this in Acts 20, verse 28. This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Now listen, which he, that is God, obtained with his own blood. There's a, <laughs> a little argument for you if you're trying to prove the deity of Christ. God spilt his blood. When did that happen? On Calvary. But that's not my point. My point is that the sacrifice of Jesus of himself on Calvary that suffering, the merit of his obedience is significant and efficacious because he is God. Not because he lived well or he died horribly, no. It's the first reality, it's the dignity of his person that makes his death and obedience significant. Listen to Hebrews 9. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more the blood of Christ? If it worked with animals in the Old Testament, what do you think about the blood of Jesus? Is Paul's question, I mean the author of Hebrews' question. Who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purifying our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. My point is that there is an intrinsic worth in Jesus Christ's sacrifice because he's God. There is significance in his obedience because he's God. 
I'll just wrap this first point up with this. Your Redeemer, Sun Valley Church, is qualified to redeem. Secondly, how does this knowledge produce a worthy walk? How does this knowledge that Paul is praying we will be filled with produce good works that are fully pleasing to God? How does this knowledge produce a, a joy that whelms from within, even in challenging circumstances? Is seen here in this next point. These things are shared with us. This knowledge of the, the or description of the person of Jesus Christ is shared to elicit love in the hearts of believers. Paul wants you to love Jesus more. The Holy Spirit, his, his, one of his objectives is to glorify Jesus. And the way that he is glorified is by us loving him more. To elicit love in the hearts of believers. If, if God were to create a plan that would produce love in the hearts of his creatures, we find just that in Scripture. This is the plan that I've been describing. If nothing else, the story of redemption causes love to swell in our hearts. Romans chapter 5 and 1 John 4 speak of these things. I'll reread them for you. Verses 7 and 8 of Romans uh, 5. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, listen, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. This is how God showed us his love. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. We weren't living without him. We were walking dead. But God, because he loved us, because he wanted to elicit, produce, grow love in our hearts for him and his son, he sent his son into the world to die for us that we might live through him. The, the second verse there, verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or satisfaction for our sins, the redeemer of our captive state. So God certainly demonstrated his divine power in creating the universe and making us in his image, right? That was a powerful act. We've talked about that recently over the past couple weeks concerning the expanse of the universe, all things that are, wow us in creation. One of the biggest wows is he created people in his image. But what demonstrates his divine love was the fact that he is our redeemer, not just our creator. The creation of us in his image may produce love, a loving response if you consider it deeply enough and long enough, but it doesn't take much time at all, does it, Christian, to respond with emotions of love for our creator when we hear that he's redeemed us from our sin? Yeah. He, he became like us, friends, so that he could pay the debt that we cannot. My heart's response is immediate love. 
The very one who was infinitely offended at our rebellion and our habitual sin was the one who humbled himself, took on flesh in the form of a servant to suffer for our pardon. God who needed nothing or gained nothing from our creation and was infinitely happy and content without us, he set aside his eternal comfort and glory and came to die for us, to redeem us. It is here where we sense this, this growing, intense, expanding love for our Redeemer. The next reason that I want to share with you that the Holy Spirit had the Apostle Paul share this amazing description of our Redeemer as the image of God and the firstborn of all creation is to produce honor to Christ produce honor to Christ. I mean, we throw parades for people who win sports championships for Pete's sake. Uh, we give people golden statues if they're good at pretending, right? We could say those who are honorable deserve honor. And there is none more honorable than Jesus Christ. In what ways do we honor Jesus who left heaven in order to accomplish our redemption? How do we do it? How can I show honor to the most honorable being in the universe? In John 5, 22 and 23, Jesus said that God the Father desires that everyone honor him just as they honor the Father. So because Jesus is honorable, because of his dignity, he deserves and requires our honor, right? We owe honor to God the Son. His intrinsic value demands that we honor him. His intrinsic value rests on his divine character. But beyond his intrinsic value is the inestimable value of his sacrificial, selfless, loving work of redemption on our behalf. We respond in honor to people that are honorable that we deem honorable. I have never attended a parade for an NBA championship team because I don't care <laughs> at all. If the parade were in Yakima, I wouldn't go. But if there were someone that I thought was deserving of my honor, I'd show up, wouldn't I? And so would you. Hence, the image of the invisible God, <laughs> the firstborn of all creation, and all that that means deserves my honor. I ought to show up. This is, by the way, why we'll be honoring Jesus throughout eternity. Revelation makes clear to us. So, Christian friend, why wait till then to show honor to the one that is honorable? Why not start now? I want you to think on this. How can you demonstrate honor to Jesus Christ, the honorable, the most honorable one? 
because of our ignorance of Christ's majesty and worth, I think, and also because of our sinful condition, we may not grasp the greatness of Jesus, which is why Paul is speaking of it. We, we need this kind of uh, initiation, this, this fodder, to consider what we ought to be considering, honoring Christ. <laughs> which is why I wanted to stop here and repeat some thoughts for you, preach to you on these two amazing phrases, the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. To stir your hearts to consider the great honor that is due our Savior, Jesus Christ. The fourth that I want to share with you that we, is, we can take away, fourth way this knowledge can cause us to fully please God in every way, is that it eliminates any hope of salvation elsewhere. <clears throat> the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, eliminates any hope of salvation elsewhere. Because of our sin um, and our natural rebellion against our Creator, we tend to look for ways to resolve our unsettled hearts, right? To lift our burdened spirits. We do this because we're humans. Uh, we don't like feeling an unsettled heart. We don't like a burdened spirit. And so we do what we can to relieve ourselves of those things. And those of us who know something of religion uh, attempt to appease God with our own doing, don't we? Uh, even after we have embraced Jesus as our only hope of salvation, do you ever find yourself trying to earn his favor by pursuing works, righteousness? Like you think God's going to like you more if you keep up with your Bible reading plan? Or if you serve more in the nursery or if you give more in the offering? You ever get, catch yourself thinking that way? But that's not the gospel, is it? <laughs> it's not. This is why we must preach the gospel to ourselves, remind ourselves daily of it. We must remind our forgetful hearts that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only source of hope, joy, peace, comfort, and purpose. Not any attempt, no matter how wonderful it is and difficult it is, no. He alone can save us from our lack of those things. He alone can save us from our sin. He alone can save us from ourselves. So you who've lived for a while know that after much searching and many different attempts uh, and different forms uh, to appease God, eventually, if we're in Christ, come to our senses, right, and are drawn back by our loving Savior to our loving Savior, being reminded by the Holy Spirit and his word that only he can save, only he can satisfy. He is our only hope of salvation. After, after the great exposition of Hebrews chapter 1 and, and chapter 2, I mean, some exalted things in those two chapters. Chapter 2 we heard this week, chapter 1 we read last week. The author says this in verse 1 of chapter 3. After all this layout, he says this. 
Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, listen, consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. Consider him. He is the only one to meet our needs. There is salvation in no other name except, which one? Jesus. Fifthly and finally, <clears throat> this, this knowledge that the Holy Spirit is pouring through the pen of the Apostle Paul helps us to understand two central truths of our, of our salvation. The phrases in the, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, helps us understand two central, critical, essential truths of our salvation. The first is this, the humiliation of the Son of God. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus is the brightness of the Father's glory, or our English Standard Translation says radiance. I like the idea of brightness. He is the brightness of the Father's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Why do I begin a conversation about humili humiliation, about our humble Savior with his exaltation? Because until we understand his exalted position, we do not grasp his humiliation. Listen to this. He is the brightness of the Father's glory. He is the fullness of God and the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth. These are all things straight from Scripture. We read that he is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega. He, we also learn that he is the author of life. He is the possessor of life itself. He is the definition of life. It, is, it was him who breathed into the nostrils of the corpse of Adam that brought him to life. This one. We learn that he is the judge of all things, and in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In fact, Proverbs calls this one wisdom. He is the essence of wisdom. And in his wisdom, in his omniscience, in his omnipotence, love, grace, and goodness, and everything that he is, he created mankind in his own image. Then he took the image of man that he created and took it on himself. Why? <laughs> Why take on your creations? That's like you becoming a donut that you've made. Who would do that? God. He, he took on the very thing he created, the image of us. He did this because that was the only solution to deal with our sinful rebellion. He took on human nature so that he could dwell among us, so that he could represent us, so that he could spill blood 
that in his essence he could not. So that he could save us. That's humility. All of his perfection, all of his perfection, everything I've mentioned was hidden beneath the veneer of his human flesh. The transfiguration that three of his apostles experienced, witnessed, revealed a small portion of his glory. It says his robes shone in white, brilliant white. And it was just a small portion of his glory. But the infinite God that I've described, and more, obviously, because he's infinite, remained obscured by Jesus' veneer of humanity. Some of you men may remember this. Dr. Todd Miles spoke to a men's gathering at Westside Baptist a few years back, and he described Jesus' deity uh, as being hidden in his flesh, kind of like a Ferrari is hidden, potentially, by a coat of mud. And he said, that car is still a Ferrari, we just can't tell, because all the mud. This is the deity of Christ covered in humanity. He is still fully God, we just can't tell completely. But those of us who can read have read where his deity peeked out from time to time in the scriptures. Like when he healed every disease he encountered. Who can do that but God? Go. Your son will live. He made food out of thin air. He conquered the elements when he told the rain to stop and the wind to, to cease. When he walked on the water on the stormy sea of Galilee, he demonstrated power over spiritual, the spiritual realm by commanding demons to submit. He demonstrated his control of time and space when he told people that this or that would happen in the future, and it did. Go and you'll find a colt. Um, he also controlled time and space when he took himself and the boat full of his disciples instantly to land. From a storm to land instantly, transporter. He demonstrated complete control over the animal creation when he commanded a fish to go swallow two coins and deliver them to Peter. That's a pretty good trick. Even though this was all true of Jesus, he humbled himself. <laughs> In his majestic glory and divine character, he humbled himself by taking on humanity and assuming the role of a lowly servant, assuming the role of a condemned, a condemned criminal, assuming the role of a homeless person. He was homeless. Remember what Jesus said? The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was homeless. He slept under the stars. What are we learning? Our God is humble. Aren't you glad he's not proud and egotistical, which he has every right to be? But no, he's humble. 
and everything that f comes out of humility for, for us and towards us. The second important spiritual truth that we learn from the two phrases, the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation is the path to being conformed to his image. This is also revealed here in these two phrases. Everything about Jesus' life on this planet is salvific. It means it saves. Everything about his life from birth to ascension is salvific, including his obedience to God's laws and plan without misstep, including all of his suffering and death, including his resurrection and ascension, are reasons that we can be forgiven, pardoned, and saved from God's just condemnation. Jesus' life and death make it possible for us to be in heaven one day. But when we talk about being conformed into the image of Jesus, we're talking about becoming like him, not him becoming like us, even though he did that. It's us becoming like our Redeemer. He's the image of God, now we are to be the image of him. This is what we call the process of sanctification. Becoming like Jesus. After the work of regeneration takes place in us, that is, the act of grace and mercy, whereby the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts and the Father transfers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his Son, Jesus Christ, from that point on, we begin the journey of sanctification. The Holy Spirit enters, regenerates, and stays there to change us. Becoming more and more like Jesus, becoming conformed to his image. So listen, and maybe write, Jesus took on our image. Jesus took on our image so we could take on his that's how you can do it. <laughs> He's left you an example. He's left you a pattern. He's left you a path. He's left you his Holy Spirit that Jesus himself called the helper in this process. He's the image of the invisible God. He is the Lord of all creation. We will never be sanctified to the point of becoming gods ourselves, as some cults teach? Never. But we will grow into an increasing likeness of Jesus' perfect humanity. And one day, when we see him face to face, what are, what are we told? We will be like him. That is the journey that begins the day you're converted. Humans are quick to imitate, right? We're quick to imitate. Social media influencers and famous athletes are paid to promote things because they know that we're imitators. You know, I can become a, a way better soccer player if I'll just, you know, buy Messi's jersey. Not sure why we believe those things. <clears throat> but once we're regenerated, guess what happens? Once, we're, once we have been transformed by the grace of our Redeemer, we instinctively begin to mimic him. We, we, we are given new instincts. The old has passed away. 
the new has come. Instead of being conformed to the world, we're conformed to Christ. We begin to mimic Jesus. And if you're not mimicking Jesus, you haven't been converted. Paul said that those of us who have embraced Jesus as our Lord and Savior are in fact predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It's, it's not maybe, it will be. It's predestined. In fact, it means it's hap that it was determined by God in eternity past that you, Christian, will become like Jesus. Paul said that we pr should pursue an attitude and action of Jesus, Philippians 2. We spent a lot of time there. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians that we, it was God's will that we be sanctified. He said in Romans chapter 12 to be conformed to Christ, not to the world. So we don't have to wonder what that looks like. No, <clears throat> Jesus has shown us. We don't have to wonder how we should treat our enemies or our loved ones or our co-workers because Jesus has shown us. We don't have to wonder how we should think about money or how we should talk or how we should relate to one another. Jesus has shown us. He, he took on our image so that we can take on his. You might say that would be nice, but I can't seem to pull that off. I've been trying for a long time. I can't, not, I have no, no traction. Well, let me, let me encourage you, discouraged friend. The same power we read in Romans chapter 1 that raised Jesus from the dead is available to all of us who believe. The same power that, that called Jesus from the tomb is that very same power who's, that's available for your transformation into his likeness. The Holy Spirit was the agent through which Jesus was able to obey and follow his Father's plan. That same Spirit resides in you and me if we've been regenerated and saved. And that Spirit, God's Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, is in the business of transformation. That's why you are confronted with challenging things, is so that the Holy Spirit can transform you into his likeness. Remember what Philippians 1.6 says? I want you to help me with this verse. He who began a good work in you will what? Complete it. Complete it. Sun Valley Church, because Jesus is the exact image of God and firstborn or Lord of all creation, we have our sins pardoned. We can, in fact, be conformed to his image. We can actually partake in his divine nature and live obediently just as he did. We can fulfill the purpose for which we were created just as Jesus demonstrated in his humanity. We can grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ who is full of grace and knowledge. We can resemble Christ our Savior. So if he is Lord of creation, we ought to be subject to him in his will. We ought to love and worship him. Since he is the exact image of God and Lord of creation, we should follow him wholeheartedly. That's the least that we're called to do. So if you're being transformed into his image, if you're submitting to his lordship in all things, what can we expect? A life that is fully pleasing to him. Let's pray.
Father, your spirit has met us once again on the pages of scripture, which he inspired. Your spirit has been present with us in the text and in the word preached. Because of your faithfulness, Lord, we, we have once again benefited from opening the scriptures and asking for guidance. Father, please continue this work in us that you've begun. You've promised that you would. We desperately desire transformation. We, we want to be people who resist being conformed to the world. We want to run towards Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, because you are the image of God and took on the image of man, we now can take on and pursue a lifelong passionate pursuit of taking on your image. Strengthen us for that, guide us for that. Be pleased with our efforts, I pray. We want to be people who are fully pleasing to you, full of joy in all these things. In your name we pray, amen. <clears throat>